Hey, it's Bao, and this is Coffee with Bao, where I chat with awesome people about their cultural identity, their creative process, and how they continue to grow as a human being. You can find all of my past guests on my website at coffeewithbao.com. Okay, so before we get started, I want to let you know ahead of time that my guest today occasionally works in the adult entertainment industry. And so we may talk about topics or use vocabulary that is not for everybody. <laughs> so let's meet somebody who I consider the quintessential artiste. He is an epic party thrower. He's a filmmaker, photographer, and art director. Uh, he's exhibited his photography at gazillions of galleries in the past couple of decades. He's been an art director for television shows such as Top Chef and Tia and Tamara. He's produced and acted in a bunch of other TV productions, and he's even been nominated for <laughs> Best Actor Awards as an extra in some porno films. <laughs> he's currently working on his next photo collection in his uh, My Broken Camera series, and he's taking his photography into the world of NFTs. Here's my friend and fellow no-car downtown dweller, Johnny Kubert White. Hello, Bao. Hello. And hello to, to everyone else. Johnny White, thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> oh, no. I, sir, am privileged. It's my privilege. I, I, I feel honored to, uh, to be interviewed by you on the show. So just so you all know, Johnny lives like a mile and a half from me down the street, <laughs> like literally on the same street. <laughs> so Johnny, there is too much spicy stuff in your resume for me to include in a one minute intro. <laughs> so uh, I hope that intro was all right. Um, I loved it. I love, I love, I love the intro. Um, I found it interesting that you said Tia and Tamara over The Bachelor. Yeah, Bachelor, <laughs> Bachelorette. There's just so much good stuff in there. That was Bachelor OG. Like we were yeah. the early, the early 10, you know, the first 10. That's amazing. So I want to shout out to Susie Kim who introduced me and Johnny White. Yes, and Steinberg and Sons. Oh, I love that story. That was my Susie Kim. Um, because she had a party at Steinberg and Sons. Yeah. And you played in the back, in the back of it. Okay. So 2005 I met you because I'd lived in the loft uh since 2004. And uh, and then I had I had I had Ming and Ping play in the backyard and we projected and had you on <laughs> yes. the on the back dock. You were the first musical guest here. Yes, that's awesome. So cool. That's my history with Johnny Cuber White. So Johnny, you um, you've been like you have had a really great art presence in LA since you've been here. Um, you've been in Chicago and New York as well in the art scene there. Um, I heard that your superhero origin story starts in Indiana? Yes, 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 my, <laughs> yes. Tell my me mom more. and dad were, my mom and dad were 14 year old runaways. Whoa. Uh, and, and, yeah, they stole a car uh, from my father's stepfather's uh, car lot uh, and uh, drove to Georgia, lied about their ages and got married. <laughs> what the yeah. F? <laughs> you didn't know that part? <laughs> yeah, yeah. and. Uh, and then they went to Florida because my mom always wanted to live in Florida. She wanted to live on the water at 14. And mm. um, they got pulled over by the police because they were 14-year-olds driving <laughs> a car. <laughs> and uh, my, my mother's father was Greek, like old world Greek. Mm. Like his mother never spoke English to us. Like my great-grandma, 
you know, she was a pissed that that her son would marry a non-Greek. So we're, <laughs> we're the bastards of like mixed blood. Um, and, uh, and, uh, so we, she never spoke English to me. She refused. She was so angry that we weren't full-blooded Greek. She wanted us to speak Greek and my grandfather did not. Wow. He wanted us to be American. Yeah. And so, uh, so, um, you know, I, I guess, you know, I, I fare on the side of white boy, which I truly, you know, I'm like the, I always think of myself as the average American white guy you know, when I was a kid, you know, you know, I would never have thrown white in there. I would have just said, you know, guy, but really it was, you know, the, the white world I knew of, the Johnny White world. <laughs> That's so cool. Do you know how, how far back do you know about your family history? Uh, my grandfather was born in the U.S. in 1909. Um, and his mom and dad came to America from Greece uh, on the boat in like 19, uh, 1910. So before World War I, my, my Greek, the Greeks came over. Yeah. Um, and then my father's parents are hillbillies. Um, and we've, I've gone back mountain. They're mountain people, coal miners. Uh, and I've been able to go back to like, you know, uh, through my grandma's own words to me when I was a child. Um, 18 something. Yeah. So, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know when they came over from Europe, but they were mountain people, uh, living in the Appalachian mountains. Whoa. So, <laughs> I mean, I remember like my early childhood, I remember going to the mountains and having an outhouse, you know, like <laughs> I'd go visit my relatives and there was an outhouse. Yeah. You know, I, and, and, you know, the people were really old and skinny <laughs> and, uh, they were, yeah, they were just uh, mountain people. And they moved from the uh, to the steel mills from the uh, coal mine. Yeah. So they left the coal mines and went to the steel mills. And so my father and mother met on the south side of Chicago. Wow, that's so interesting. And isn't it interesting how your grandpa was the one who was like, you got to be fully American. Try not to speak Greek or anything. And, yeah. Uh, and then the generation after that was like, you know, trying to get you to be more Greek. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting, like, it's really the Indians that have come after me to huh. be more Indian because the numbers are, were dying out. Yeah. Um, my, my, my grandfather wanted to be American. So he, when he was in uh, training for World War II, was in Oklahoma uh, at a base. And he went to the reservation to get an American girl, oh. <laughs> like the truly American. And he, uh, he wrote my grandmother through the war. And then when he got out from the war, he went directly to the reservation, picked her up, married her took her home to meet mom and dad and none of the, they would not speak to her. They would not speak to her. She had to send all her children to Greek school against my grandfather's will, just so she could understand what his family was saying about her. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh yeah. Show folks your, your mug. Oh, oh, well, you know this, sir. I like your cock. Well, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that on camera, but. <laughs> You're too classy to say that on camera. Yes, yes, yes. There are certain things, you know. So you were born in Indiana, like at mm -hmm. the border of Illinois, which is on, uh, on state line. Cool. Like, it's, the street was called State Line. So oh, if you wow. Crossed, if you crossed the street, you were in Illinois. Um, and <laughs> so, you know, we went to the candy store in Illinois. We came home in Indiana. Wow, that's so interesting. Um, yeah, if we, if we, in elementary school, you started messing around with photography, and obviously that's like a lot of your life now is photography and creative arts. Um, how did you get introduced to the camera and film and stuff? 
Um, my mother. My mother gave me um, a little, not a brownie. Uh, it was a cute little camera, though, um, that you would look through and you'd click. There was no focus. There was no this mm-hmm. or that. Yeah. There was this, a little flash cube that would go off, um, like a disposable camera of t- of yesterday. <laughs> I was going to say today, but you know, I don't, do they even make, I think it's kind of, you know, the quiche thing to have disposable cameras on your wedding table. Uh, but uh, the, um, we would have them and you pop it open and it was, the film was called 126 and it was like a little cartridge. It was shaped kind of like, like a circle over in circle, which is the film roll yeah, coming around I remember and wrapping this. up and you'd pop it out and you'd take it to the parking lot down the street. And there's a little box uh, with a guy inside the box <laughs> in there, like, and you'd, and you would drive up to the, the box I and mean, it looked like an outhouse, okay? <laughs> it was the size of an outhouse. And you pull up to it and you give them your film and you come back two days later and pick it up. So it was 1975. So I was nine. I was nine when she gave me the camera and it was hers. So I, but you know, it's like from her childhood, but her childhood was like t- five years before, you know, <laughs> like her child, my mother's childhood, to put it in perspective, I threw my mother her 25th birthday party that year. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> The year she gave me the camera, I threw her her birthday party uh, and I put happy quarter century mom all over the house and she hated it. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's, I have a, my perspective of age. It took me a long time to realize how my perspective of age was just different than other people because my aunts and uncles were the age of their brothers and sisters. Yeah. Did you know... Um as a super young kid that you wanted to be an artist or you wanted to do artistic things with your life? Um, you know, to answer the question directly, n- no, Indir- <laughs> I didn't know I was an artist. Um, I, and I didn't, I didn't claim that I was an artist until I was in my forties. Wow. Like I would have never said I was an artist. Like, that just seemed so, and I went to one of the best art schools in the world for my master's, but, you know, I was told there I wasn't an artist, <laughs> huh. you know, so, so it was, a uh, I was the preppy, non-black clad, non-pierced, non-tattooed kid in art school. <laughs> like I was the freak in art school because I was like the little preppy guy, you know, <laughs> who was in a fraternity and undergrad and <laughs> you know, from the South. Yeah. Um, and I was driving in Italy uh, for a wedding, the same time Kim Kardashian's wedding was there, which is important <laughs> because there were no rental cars. So I was at the rental car place and they didn't have any. Mm-hmm. And I was supposed to drive to, you know, the honeymoon of this wedding I just went to. And there was a girl there who had a car, but she couldn't drive stick shift. And so I said, I can drive stick. We're going to the same place. So she and I drove for days together in Italy, in Tuscany. And, and she's like, Johnny White, you will not leave this car without claiming that you're an artist. Because you're one of the most art, you're, you're the artist I know. You're the Andy Warhol of Chicago, I'm like, or LA. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And she, she was insistent. And I really thought about it. I thought, why don't I claim the word artist? Wow. Um, and so, so you know, so I, I call myself artist now, but it just seems like someone said, what do you do? I don't, do I, I don't say I'm an artist. I'll, I'll say like, a, you know, I, I, I've, I'm, I'm a filmmaker um, from the time I was uh, nine and 10. So that's 1975, six. I've been writing a journal. Um, I've been writing stories. I write about my dreams and taking pictures. And I never thought of any of that as like an artist, really. Yeah. I just wanted to be a, I wanted to be a lawyer. <laughs> I wanted to be a politician. After school, 
you're、mm-hmm. like, dude, my student loans are coming due. I better go get a job out here. <laughs> you should go to LA、yeah. with your film degree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, no, you know, I went to Chicago、uh, for film school. I get out of、uh, film school in Chicago and I got a job at a not for profit because I knew as an artist, it's good to know press. Yeah. So I got a job doing press for a not for profit film case,、uh, a, a media center, it's called,、uh, Chicago Filmmakers. And while there, I got to know Roger Ebert. You know, they knew me. You know, like all the film critics in Chicago knew me. That's so,、awesome. so I started a film festival to showcase films and, and I did all this stuff. And I was, you know, in Chicago, I became like the, the big fish in the film community. Nice.、Um, and I made, a fe- I made four feature films. In 1997.、Um, and so I had a great reputation. I was on the rise as the guy.、Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't want to move to LA when I'm 40.、Mm-hmm. I want to move there when I'm 30. <laughs> so I moved here when I was 30.、Um, I couldn't work the first two years here. I couldn't get a job、mm-hmm. because, you know, I mean, I was lucky in that the clicks that took me were the Ivy League set because I went to the Art Institute of Chicago.、Uh, and so I was with the Brown people, the、yeah. Brown and the Yale people. Pulled me in. So, my social circles weren't USC or UCLA. It was the out of town smart intellects, you know,、um, and it was a, a wonderful group of people. I sold five of my short films within the first year I was here in LA.、Um, and then,、uh, then my feature finally sold. It took five years to sell it. Wow. And then I spent a couple of years. I, when I was here, I only did, I did game shows to survive. Before the internet, you could do five game shows in one year and they didn't know about each other. Because they didn't have the budgets to do, do the research. So if、wow. they see that you were on some other game show, nope, you, you, you forfeit all your prizes. Wow, that's so, crazy. Yeah, I, I won like $20,000 in 18 months. So, <laughs> that's so wild. So, so, you know, so I didn't want to be a PA on, on a film. I, I was a director producer and I was going to leave Chicago or leave, I was going to move back to Chicago or New York、um, uh, when. Uh, I went home and I decided I was leaving. And there was a message on a machine Hey, Johnny White, I saw your photograph、uh, at a friend's house. I think you'd be perfect in this movie. And I'm like, Oh, a casting agent. <laughs> I, could be, I could be her assistant. <laughs> so I called her up and to meet her, I auditioned just to meet her so I could ask her to be her assistant. Yeah. And so I didn't care about the audition. I kicked ass because I had my acting background and I got a role in Mastering Commander. Awesome. That Russell Crowe film. And because of that, I met some people. Like when I was on the film, I made sure to meet the crew. Yeah. Because I didn't want to be an actor. I wanted to get, I needed to know crew members who could vouch that I wasn't going to be an asshole on set.、Mm-hmm. Because no one wants to be the asshole who brought the asshole to set. <laughs> so my, you were a part of the pretty early wave of like competition based、um, reality TV shows. <laughs> just contributing to the look and feel of that. So, if, if I grew up in that era, I would have kind of seen some of your aesthetic. You know, it's interesting. I think, I think、um, in the reality world, I was new to art department.、Mm-hmm. Like, I was always a director and producer who was a busybody. One day I was on a set, I was hanging up some curtains. And this woman walked into the set with all these men and they were placing all this furniture. And, and from the ladder, I just went, Really? And she goes, What do you mean? I'm like, No, no, I'm nobody. I said, I'm just, I, I, was, I was hired to sew your curtains and、yeah. I'm sorry. 
She goes, no, no, what did you mean? I, I know who you are. You know, my, my assistant hired you. She goes, you're that filmmaker guy. What do you mean? <laughs> and I said, I said, well, that couch is beautiful, but it's a comma in a room where it should be an exclamation point. Ooh, baby. And she goes, I don't understand. <laughs> she goes, come down here. And I'm like, fuck, I'm going to get fired from my first <laughs> job in LA. Like I, I finally get on a set and I'm finally like impressing people because, you know, who knew I could sew, you know? <laughs> and, so, and, and she's like, just do it. And she walked out of the room. So the guys were like, okay, do what? So I'm like, well, and I set the room and she walked in and she was like, she understood. Yeah. That's she awesome. <laughs> and, I, and I said, see, I said, the camera walks in and you see the room and now you see the couch. Yes. When she had it set, you walked in, you saw the couch and you didn't see the room. Mm -hmm. um, and she's like, can you, are you available tomorrow? I need the bedroom and the hallway and the, <laughs> the, the, the bed, bed done. And so I, I got a promotion. Yes. Like in, so I stayed behind a camera guy and I constantly cleaned and reset the set so it wouldn't look bad on camera. Yeah. And so at the end of the night, you know, I, I was done and I was just kind of leave. And they came up to me like, dude, they fired this, uh, the lead man and they made me head set dresser for the season. <laughs> and then the next season they gave me art director. Cool. And they offered me production designer, but I turned it down because I'm like, whoa, guys. I said, I'm still learning about art department. Like, let me just be the, hire a different designer. Let me learn from another designer. And so they brought in another designer. So uh, Angelique Federick um, and Tiffany Dior were the first two designers I worked under. And it was the best job. Like, it was, it was so much fun. I never thought about, like, I was looking for, like, a waiting table job, <laughs> you know, but instead, I got like the bachelor to kind of be my waiting table job, which people have told me that sounds insulting. But I don't mean it in an insulting way. It's just not what I want to do. Sure. But it paid really well. And I made quick cash. And then I could still do my art stuff. Because I thought, I didn't think of myself as an art director. I was a maker of media, mm -hmm. uh, a producer of events. And, and I did charity events. I love to organize people together and do something well that um, super translates directly into your parties and your space your 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 space downtown here in the arts district yes and um you know i think a lot of that is reflection of how you immerse yourself in the scene and all the in the group and the culture in la um which I guess allowed you in the last decade or so to focus on a lot of your photography and more of your artistic endeavors, like personal projects, uh, which is awesome, right? <laughs> Who doesn't want that? I'm very early on. I realized to live the life I want to live. You, um, there's a certain way you have to live. You have to do certain things. Like, you know, I like to have, I like to have a hundred people over. Yeah. <laughs> I like to invite people I know to come see art and meet other people I know. I love showing off my <laughs> friends to other people. Um, I guess in the last decade, how many years, you've been working on this thing called My Broken Camera? Yes, um, for 10 years. <laughs> I, broke, I broke this camera and for 10 years I explored what I could make with it. Um, it you know, it's a broken machine, but when I broke it, I had a model, I had, it, you know, I was doing a photo shoot and I broke my camera, yeah. um, but I didn't tell anyone because A, I was embarrassed. <laughs> and so I just kept shooting. I just kept shooting. And I started to see that some images would come out 
there were like four that were beautiful. I mean, like, I was like, wow. So I realized the camera, the aperture stayed open, not three <laughs> seconds, but it stayed three beats open. Uh-huh. Um, and so you could only take pictures in really dark situations because <laughs> too much light would come in. Uh, so if I was in a real light situation, I would hold the camera against my body or, and I'd snap it. And then I'd pull the camera up and take the, take the picture. And I noticed it did different things. Like if I put my hand in front of the lens and snapped it oh, and then wow. moved my hand away, I would get blues and purples for yeah. some reason. And if I held it against my body and did it this way, I'd have another kind of flare come through. Um, if I shook the camera after I took the picture, I would get two images of the same thing, but one would be a negative. Wow. that's <laughs> Yeah. So, so I just kept it. And by the end, I have a catalog of like 40,000 images. This broken camera, I, I, I hashtag it. I call it my broken camera. Mm-hmm. Um, at first, people would, they disregarded it. Huh. Um, and I think... It was in 2017, I was in Italy at, during the um, Biennale. While I was in Italy, you know, which is funny because like six years before I was in Italy and that's when this woman convinced me, you know, you need to claim artists. And, mm-hmm. and now I'm in Italy again and I'm showing my selfies and, you know, they're, they're holding me, you know, they, they think I'm this great American artist. And then I go to <laughs> yeah, Amsterdam and in Paris, I'm kind of like, I've been in French L and French GQ and... I was on a TV show in Paris and, you know, they like me. Um, and that kind of gave me cred. Like when I came back to America in 2017, suddenly they took my broken camera seriously. Yeah. Let's take a look at and, some of those photos. Yes. All right. All right. Let's check it out, y'all. Johnny Kubert White is an artist, photographer, art director, and more. <laughs> His photo series, My Broken Camera has been going on for several years. It's basically a, a several collections of photos from this broken camera. Um, so he captures various slices of his life in art and entertainment, and um, they look just really dramatic, surreal, erotic, energetic. And you'll see like the brokenness of the camera is the aesthetic. So this selfie, for example, is pretty hardcore, um, like distorted. But uh, the best way you can find Johnny's work is at a website called Lens Culture, and the URL is lensculture.com slash Johnny dash white. Let's take a little break. Hey friends, not sure if you know this, but I serve on the board of a nonprofit called the Slants Foundation. We're a volunteer-driven organization that provides resources, scholarships, and mentorship to Asian American creatives looking to incorporate activism into their art. We also produce events that feature these talented creators. Our last virtual concert helped over 500 people register to vote for the very first time. You can learn about and support the Slants Foundation by visiting theslants.org. Thanks, and see you soon. Let's get back to the show. The last couple of years, and the last year in particular, you obviously had to pivot pretty dramatically because of the pandemic. And um, you mentioned... uh, I guess last week or something that you were still doing like assembling gallery exhibitions and um, trying to function normally. <laughs> but what, what do you think has changed lately and, and how lasting do you think those changes are going to be in how you create and, and exhibit your work? Well, well, you know, with, with the COVID, the C-19, I think it pushed us all forward 
in a way that we were taking our time. Mm. Two years ago, no one could Zoom. Mm. Now everyone can. Grandma knows how to Zoom now. Yes. Yeah. And so what, what it did for me was it, it threw me back into the world of like my childhood where I was home alone with me and my book writing and working uh, about stories. Mm. So this made me sit back at my computer and, you know, I, I wasn't social. I wasn't out at school. I wasn't having parties. I, mm. I was here and going through my catalog of photographs and I made a book and, you know, and then I had to promote the book and I, I sold it. I sold all the copies of it. And, and I also, um, I learned about galleries online. I learned about NFTs. I, you know, I, it forced me to look at my computer and, 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 and give in to the fact that I have to put my work online. And so now, you know, lately I've been surviving because of COVID um, with a little bit of financial relief from my uh, Native American tribe and the U.S. government. Um, you know, I'm, I'm surviving and waiting to be able to get a job and on a film set again. Yeah. But, but it's forced me to sell my artwork and to advertise it and promote it. And my, you know, I've now had five art galleries show various pieces and they all agree at the, the price that I'm selling. Um, and now I'm just, uh, you know, it's been a really good experience for, for the growth of my reputation um, um, as great. an artist, as you know, so as a fine artist. That's awesome. So, so much of your art captures and celebrates, uh, like you were just saying, like your gay identity and your lifestyle and your parties. Um, growing up in the 70s and 80s, like, that must have been really hard. <laughs> you, know, you know, my father pegged me as gay when I was three. Whoa. Like, I don't remember this, but I hear, you know how you grow up and you hear stories about, yeah, about your parents. Well, you know, one of the stories was how I was at a picnic on the 4th of July, but I cried when one of my father's cousins, who was a boy, brought a snake over to me. <laughs> like I lost my shit, you know, and I embarrassed my dad. And so he sat me down and put bugs on me wow. until, until I could just sit there like a man and take it. <laughs> And, you know, to a three-year-old, you know, just putting bugs on him until he stopped crying, you know? Um, so and then he didn't like the way I walked. Yeah. So he wouldn't let me go to school. If I was walking out of the house like a girl, I wow. had to stay home. And, you know, and then he'd beat up my mom. Wow. You know, um, I was too skinny. You know, I was, I, I was, I sat with my legs crossed one day and he like, my mom. Like, wow. you know, so if I did something... That he found effeminate, he would beat my mother. Mm. So, so you know, I, I it was it was a, a rough uh, experience, um, but but I learned that people thought I was gay. Mm. I didn't know what gay was, yeah, but I knew people looked at me and said gay, wow. and I knew that was bad, and that you that people got hurt, yeah, because of wow. it. Um, you know, so. So I was really reservedly queer and quiet, but also very, you know, Johnny White. <laughs> um, uh, when my father and mother got divorced, it was a good day for me. Mm. Um, and then, but at the same time, I, I was in the closet until I was 30 years old. Wow. I, I, had, I was suicidal um, from the time I was masturbating. 
<laughs> the wow, minute I masturbated, man. I was suicidal because I masturbated. <laughs> I mean, I would pray to God. I would get on my knees and pray to God to help me not masturbate. Uh, I would pray to God to make me straight, make me have a wet dream about a girl. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, you know, just, it, I was so um, um, confused and messed up. And when I graduated from college, I remember going to my friend's house and seeing someone who I met through a newspaper and had a sexual experience. Wow. And I had a nervous breakdown. Wow. That, that I was with my friends from college and there was this guy who knew I had sex with a man. Crossover. In the room. And, and it was awful. I mean, I, I left the party. I broke down. You know, oh, my God, what if he tells them? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and it was really hard. <clears throat> when I went to art school, I remember the first day at the Art Institute of Chicago, the school of the Art Institute of Chicago, there was someone next to me in 1990 with an ACT UP button on. And I was terrified. Wow. Because act up, act up outed people. Yeah. Act up, put your picture on a piece of paper all over the city. He's gay. Yeah. You know, because they, 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 they thought, you know, if you were forced out of the closet, people would say, oh my God, Johnny White's gay. I love Johnny White. And Johnny White's gay. Wow, I love gay people. But being thrown out of the closet like that, people kill themselves. Uh, people were killed, mm-hmm. <laughs> maimed, you know. Um, it was a really different world. I remember in, I think in 1992, 90, 1994, I, I, I started uh, teaching and I went down to Florida on a grant and I lectured to uh, a school and I saw a sign for a gay club in a high school and I cried like just to see that, you know, had I gone to high school and there'd be a sign up saying, Hey, gay, you know, come love acceptance. It would have been a totally different world, but at the same time, had I been able to claim gay when I was 14, I'd probably be dead by now because wow. of the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I was 19 when Rock Hudson died hmm. and I was in college and, you know, I wasn't really sexually active, but I kind of knew I was gay, <laughs> but I wasn't wanting to admit it. And I was still hoping to, to, you know, to marry a woman and have babies or, or, sure. you know, you know, something not to be gay. Um, and I saw friends who were gay getting married and, you know, some, an older lover, not an older lover, but a man who had, who, who like a teacher, uh, turned out to be gay, who was married and had children. Mm. And, you know, so the late eighties, uh, with the AIDS epidemic, um, it helped the gay community in that it forced people to say gay was real. Mm-hmm. There are gay people. And just knowing that there are gay people made such a difference because, you know, my mom, she mentioned gay to me when I was like 10 or 11 because one of her friend's husbands disappeared. And, and she goes, well, they all say he, he might be gay, but he can't be gay. Not, not him. He's too nice. Like, I don't know what my mother, yeah, I don't know what my mother, she goes, he's just a special guy. He's just sensitive. Yeah. No, just like you, honey. You know, you're just, I just tell people, Johnny's a new kind of man. He's a man who loves women, who's not going to beat them. He can talk to them and appreciate girls. And he's just a new kind of man. He's what men should be. You know, she just, she, 
you know, she wasn't a, she was a 1950s mentality yeah. in a 1970s body. Of, wow, interesting. Of, you, know, you, you told me a story recently that um, uh, like later in her life, like near the end of her life, you guys stopped talking for several years. And yes, yes. Some of it was just, I think that denialism maybe about your sexuality. Yeah, you know, I uh, when I was in when I was living with my mother um, in 1989, when I first started studying film, um, I went to art school, and you know, I saw I saw some. I knew gay existed, but mm -hmm. I was not ready to throw myself into that world. Yeah. Um. So so you know, I was kind of little by little accepting myself more and more, but I knew. Uh, I knew not to bring it up to my mom. Hmm. Uh, when I brought it up to her, um, it was it was really the first time was rough because um, my aunt, her sister, uh, is a lesbian. She, I was living with my mother. I'd graduated from college. I was studying film at USF. Um, I did not want to make friends or anything while I was in Florida because I didn't want any temptation not to leave. Hmm. You know, my aunt. I came home. She was living with a woman. Uh, she was divorced. Um, I knew she was a lesbian from, from childhood. I mean, she was only five years older than me. Uh -huh. So, so, you know, my aunt, she taught me how to run with my fists. You know? <laughs> like, I used to run like, you know, like a little gay boy. <laughs> and she's like, you know, she's like, no, make a fist and run. Uh, so I was hanging out with her. I was 22. Um, I had, a, uh, I would sit with her and her girlfriend, um, who they would both talk about men. They had posters in their rooms of men. Uh, they pretended not to sleep in the same room. So wow. I respected that because I knew, I knew what it was like to be in the closet. Yeah. Because I, uh, I was in the closet. So I started dropping hints to them. Like the Indio Go girls have a concert coming. You know, they're, they're like this lesbian couple from Atlanta, Athens. Uh, we should go see them. You know? <laughs> so my aunt, after about six months of this, she called my mother. And said, Johnny has a problem. He keeps talking about gay things to me. I, I think he might be gay. Huh. So I wake up at my mom's house. And I'm like, where's mom? Like every morning she would wake up and wash dishes and, you know, make me breakfast. And I, I'm a 22. I'm like, I don't hear the dishes being washed. Because it always annoyed me. So I'm like, oh, I have to wake up to dishes again. Um, and I went out and she's nowhere. And and I go to her bedroom and it's locked. And I knock at the door and I hear her whimpering, mm. like sobbing. I'm like, mom, what's, what's going on? And I, I knew, I said, what's happening? And she's crying because she's such a girly girl. <laughs> and she's sobbing and she goes, you can't trust people. You cannot trust people, Johnny. Your aunt, your aunt said this. And I said, okay, mom? And she goes, she will use whatever you give, whatever you give people, the information, they will use it against you to hurt other people. Wow. And she's crying. I said, what did she say? You know, I'm like, okay, I don't want to jump in and say, did she say I'm gay? You know, because, you know, she said, she said she's worried about you, that you're talking about gay things to her. I said, oh, so I was angry. Then I was pissed off. Yeah. Like, mom, I wasn't trying. And I didn't lie. I said, 
I wasn't hinting that I was gay. I was hinting that I could accept her gayness. Your sister's a lesbian. Within five minutes, she was out cooking me breakfast, happy. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw, I saw, I said, okay, mom's not ready. Yeah. Mom's not ready for this conversation. So I went up to Chicago, went to art school, um, lived in Chicago, had my life um, closetedly. So she left Florida, married a farmer and was in Iowa, the most exotic creature for miles. And yeah. so I went to visit her on the farm for my stepbrother's wedding. And after the wedding, I was feeling really good. And I, I and she and I were talking and I go, mom, you know, I, I really want to talk to you about, you know, about my life. And she grabbed my hand and she goes, darling, I know you're eccentric. That's all I need to know. I said, okay, cool. Yay. And I, I felt really good about it. And I went back home to LA and I'm living my life. And 2005 came around. Um, um, and yeah, I had my meet my mom party <laughs> and my mom, you know, she's there and we're, a band is playing and the stuff's going on. And, and she goes, darling, if you don't stop acting like this, people are going to think you're gay. Wow. Oh, and I was crushed. I, I was shocked. I, I was taken aback. And then I got angry. Huh. I got that. She would say that to me in my own home. How dare she say that to me in my home? And I drove her to the airport the next day. And it was after 9-11. So, you know, you couldn't do what you did before. Before 9-11, you walked your mother to the gate. You right. sat there till she got on the airplane and then you left, you know, and now you pretty much curbside service. So I, I went up to the curb. She goes, what are you doing? I said, oh, here, this is where you get out. She goes, no, you park the car, you grab my luggage, but, you know, like a lady, I will be taken care of. <laughs> and I'm like, Ugh. and so I parked the car and I get her luggage out of them and I have this anger, this anger at her. And mm. I took her into the airport and I said, this is as far as I can go. I said, miss, can I take my mother to the plane? She goes, no, you may not. So I gave her her luggage and I left. And I did not talk to her for, um, I would say any communication that happened for the next three years, I called when I knew she was at work and I would leave a message mm. just so, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be cruel. You know, I want to like, you know, but I, I was done. I was done not liking myself. Yeah. I was done having people look at me as, you know, as less than when they should be people proud of me. I'm Johnny fucking white. You know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm impressive. <laughs> 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 Fuck you. And, you know, and then um, her 58th birthday came in 2008. And I was like, oh, I just need to go see her. So I went to her, um, you know, I went to her 58th birthday and I'm sitting there and she coughs and blood comes out. Oh, no. And I'm like, mom, what is that? She goes, oh, no, it, the doctor says it's pneumonia. I said, no, you don't cough up blood with pneumonia. You, that's tuberculosis or cancer. You need a CAT scan. You need an MRI. You know, go to the doctor. So I went to Chicago because I had a, um, a couple. I was in Chicago, not just for her birthday. I was in Chicago for um, um, a, a job I had with some friends. And I kind of went to Iowa to the farm, which was only four hours away for her birthday. I go back. I'm at um, kind of like the, the L.A. art show, like, you know, there's L.A. Art, art Expo or whatever. It was something like that in Chicago. So I'm standing there 
at a cocktail party with a martini in my hand and I'm in a great suit and I'm in this big room of art and people and my phone, like I, I walked and my phone got service and got a message. And so I, I listened and it was my mother sobbing. And, and she's like, they told me six months, I'm going to be dead in six months. I'm like, and I'm just in the middle of this room and I start sobbing and wow. I don't know what to do. Cause I, I'm not, I don't like to cry. I don't, cause crying, I got, my mother got beat or I got beat if I cried. Only sure. girls cry. And I, I just walked up to a wall and sobbed to a wall with my back to the party. And my a friend came up to me, Paula Fraley, a filmmaker friend. And she tapped me on the shoulder. And I turn around and I'm like shaking and crying. And, and she goes, what's going on? And I'm like, and I can't even talk. And she takes me into a, a staircase hallway. Um, and I just, I hold her and there've only been three times in my life where I've broken down and released in a sob. Mm. And this noise came out of me that was, you know, but I, at that moment I let myself just, you know, this woman, this sister of mine held me and I just sobbed. And, you know, the next day I, I, I found an oncologist uh, at Northwestern. I called some friends of mine who were wealthy they got me in, got my mother into an appointment with the best doctors at Northwestern University. And she came in and he said, well, I don't want to say you have six months to live, but 90% of the people are dead in a year who have your condition at this moment, but 10% of them live for seven years. So my mom and I are optimists. We're like, we could do, we could do that 10%. Um, and I stuck with her, um, in, until she died. So I, I went, I went to Iowa and sorry, <laughs> I went to Iowa and, and it was a lovely experience. Just, uh, being able to have the lifestyle that I have and take six months yeah. and go, go to my mother and, and sit with her. And in the beginning, you know, it was like normal life. You know, I just, you know, I was there and we would talk and I would take her to the, you know, the doctors and, the, you know, try chemo and try different pills. And I was there to make sure she took the right pills. And, and, uh, and that way her husband could go to on the farm and work and not worry about her. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was a lovely, wonderful experience to be there for, you know, my mom. Yeah, I'm glad that came out. But like uh, that. now, conversely, <laughs> and this kind of relates to the entire story. My first night in Iowa, I'm on the farm, and my sister called me. She goes, thank you for being able to be here for a while. I, I couldn't do it. I, my, my sister lived three miles away. But, you know, I understood their relationship. Yeah. And it was, it was a, a, kind of a typical girl-mom relationship where it's like, to mark, you know, like, it's fighting and it's love. It's fighting and it's love, you know. Yeah. Um, and my, my sister wouldn't have been able to be there every single day. Anyway, she had a job. She had her kids. So I went there. Um, and my sister called me and said, you know, you need to tell mom you're gay before she dies. You need her to tell you she loves you. And I was like, I don't need that. <laughs> I said, I would rather mom spend the next six months fighting, focus on her survival. Yeah. And not thinking about something that doesn't matter. I said, you know, I love her. She loves me. She doesn't need to go through me coming out to her and forcing her to deal with this issue when she needs to focus on if she survives. Yes. Yeah. If she survives, 
you know, I need to tell her because I would like her to meet my boyfriend. So I told my sister, no. And she's like, you need to tell her. I'm like, no, I don't. It's my business. Stay out of it. Um, so when my mother, um, you know, uh, had her six months, it was evident that uh, it was, you know, not going to be a, a survival situation. Mm. Um, and I stayed with her until um, two days before she died because I had to come back to L.A. to vote for Obama. So I flew to L.A. My sister was with my mom and, and my mother. It was the last day. It was wow. evident. And, and um, I lost my phone. Um, so I came home and I was, uh, boxing up and shipping out art and I dropped my phone in one of the boxes. <laughs> and so my mom died like eight hours later. Wow. And so no one could get a hold of me, which was good. You know, I just, it was good for me to, once I lost my phone, I knew I was like, oh my God, my mom died. Mm. I just knew it. I knew that that phone being lost was the universe's way of me being able to be alone and mourn without phone calls coming mm. in at me. Um, and uh, so my sister was there and my aunt called me, uh, Kathy, uh, my aunt Joanne called me and she's like, I'm sorry. I said, don't worry. I said, you know, I figured this was going to happen. And she goes, Johnny, no, I'm not talking about your mom being dead. I mean, yes, I'm sorry. Your sister, before she left the room, as your mother was dying, turned around at the door and said, your son is gay. You need to admit that before you're dead. Wow. And then left. Wow. My <laughs> now, my sister never told me this. So I know it wasn't my sister doing it for me. Mm. I, you know, I jokingly say she wanted to be my mom's favorite at the end. <laughs> and by throwing <laughs> me into the gay, <laughs> it, that was the easy way to do it. But, uh, you know, I jokingly say that. Um, but why? Like, really? <laughs> like, the, you know. It's it, uh, your work. Now thinking about your work and your photographs and the way that I described it as capturing and celebrating your gay identity, um, it means so much more now after hearing you tell these stories because it really is a celebration of, you know, something that you worked really hard to free yourself from all of this other bullshit, right? That you grew up with. And um, so now thinking about your photographs and your artwork all together, I'm like, just so proud of it. So <laughs> I Aww. like a different view of it, you know? Oh, that's, thank you. I mean, it's, I, you're the first person to say that. Uh, to me, um, but I think I've shared a lot in this podcast interview. Um, so uh, that's nice to hear. Um, I, you know, when you, when you're so closeted, sometimes you come out extra flaming, you know, <laughs> you, you know? and uh, I, I think, you know, I always had kind of a flame filter, but uh. I'm also very kind of like just me, just, you know, I, I just, I would rather just be me and let people see it and feel it and, um, and accept it. But with the art, I would, throughout my early art career, I, I, not constantly, but I repeatedly would feel sad that I didn't do something a year sooner. Hmm. So if I look at my life and my, my, um, um, uh, 
love of self and acceptance of self and, and acceptance of sexual self. It took me a long time and I was kind of like, it's embarrassing sometimes to say to uh, someone who was out at 12, you know, oh yeah, I was tw trans at six, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I was closeted till I was 30, <laughs> you know, but it was a different world. Yeah. It, it was a different world. So, you know, I have to be less uh, hard on myself. I always took pictures of myself. I, I always was interested in nudity. Um, you know, I told you I, I, the first time I saw porn, it was like a religious experience to me. I, I knew there was something in the universe. Um, and so when the Maplethorpe show, I went to Paris and I saw the Maplethorpe show. It was a retrospective. And you saw these famous images of torsos and breasts and, and you know, tame nudity. Mm -hmm. And then there was a room in the back and it had a sign, forbidden. You know, you may not go in here unless you read this disclaimer and SFW um, and sign it. That you knew you were going to go into a room with objectionable imagery. Wow. And so you walked in and you saw you know, a cock laying on a table like a piece of meat. You saw a leather-clad guy with a whip whipping someone naked. You yeah. saw these images. It was, con you know, the, the world didn't uh, have, it wasn't accepting to see this kind of art. Sure. But Maplethorpe put it out there. And so recently, like a year ago, um, my, my broken camera work was, you know, kind of rising in the world of, of people were accepting it. Yeah. I went up to this editor um, of the LA Weekly that I knew. And I said, hey, it's been a while since you did any art story on me. And, and I have a new art show. Uh, she goes, oh, your broken camera? And I was like, yeah. And so I showed her the image and she goes, this is your broken camera work? She goes, Johnny. So she went through my, you know, because I had stuff on the phone. She's looking at it. And she's like, mm -hmm. and she goes, what's this one? I said, oh, I said, like Maplethorpe. When I do my next show, I'm going to have a theme on each wall. You know, here you'll have selfies, here you'll have doppelganger, and then there'll be a door or a curtain, and you can't get in. And you'll see the sign, it'll say, you have to sign this to go in, a disclaimer. <laughs> and then you walk in, and the show's called Fuck Me, Fuck You, and it's images of guys fucking me <laughs> with the broken camera. Yeah. And she's like, these images are amazing. <laughs> and she's looking at them. Well, 10 days later, she calls me, and she says, okay, I have a surprise for you. You're going to be really happy. Get a bunch of images ready for me. And I said, okay, uh, what do you want? She goes, well, we'll talk. So I start going through my thing, start looking at my images. Well, she calls me for the sex issue of uh, my broken care of, of the LA Weekly. Nice. And she basically put 20 pictures of, you know, fuck me, fuck you in the LA Weekly. And I loved it, of course. Because, you know, it's an article about me. I mean, she said many amazing things, but it ruins the surprise. Like, now my art show is not the secret back room. <laughs> That's the showcase, you know? <laughs> so I think you called yourself, in, in not these words, but you, you, I think you would consider yourself a late bloomer a little bit about your own personal identity and, and yes. just being I mean, in today's standards, in today's standards. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, like this journey about just, learning to live your best life as your best self. Um, have you learned anything that you can teach me about 
learning to live my best life and be my most authentic self? Oh, not to think about it. Wow. Like, if you think about it, you're not. You're no longer in the moment. Damn. You know, um, and that was, I think that's a hard thing for everyone to realize. Like, you know, when you meditate or do yoga or, you know, they're always talking about the moment. Mm. But it's real. Like, what we have right now is this. That's all there is in the world. That's all that matters right now wow. is this. Because yesterday doesn't matter. Tomorrow doesn't matter. Because right now we're alive and we're breathing and we're together. You know, and we're happy. Damn. Thank you, Johnny White. <laughs> I did not expect that piece of advice. And it's so beautiful and it reflects, you know, you so well. Um, so I really appreciate that. I, I'm oh. really proud of who you are and, and who you have made your, your masterpiece is you. <laughs> it was, it, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Uh, I just, you know, I just want to be happy and to, to, for other people to be happy. Yeah. Like when I was a kid, someone asked me recently, what did you tell people you wanted to be when you grow up? I was like, I remember the first time someone asked me that, I said, I was seven. I want to be kind. When I grow up, I want to be kind. Hell yeah. Like, <laughs> I didn't say an occupation. I just, I just want to be kind. And, and I, think, I, I think I am, you know? I think I, you know, I try to be a kind, loving person. That's awesome. Johnny, hang on for a couple of minutes, I'm, or one minute. I'm going to give a little outro, and then I'll come back and say a proper goodbye to you, right? Okay. Actually, I'm going to show an image from your broken camera. <laughs> Johnny's project is called My Broken Camera, and it's an ongoing photo series. Uh, it's really, really interesting. And now after this conversation, it has a different and, and so much more meaning to me. Uh, you can find Johnny at lensculture.com slash Johnny dash white. And um, I really appreciate everybody sitting uh, and watching or, or listening to this conversation. I, like Johnny, want to share my amazing friends with everybody. So I hope you like the show today. Um, you can help me if you do like the show by sharing it with your friends. And um, if you can support me financially in making all this very resource intensive content, I'd really appreciate that. You can go to coffeewithbow.com. There's a big blue button that says, leave a tip. It used to say support, but now it says leave a tip. Thank you so much. Grabbing coffee with Bao and Johnny Kubert White. You wanna see our beautiful mugs while we chat? Coffee with Bao is also available in video. Just search for it on YouTube and hit the subscribe button.